Podcast. Welcome to Get Real with Dr. Ronay, Doctor of Clinical Psychology and Trauma Specialist. Dr. Ronay Calvert is Executive Director of Live Treatment Concierge Services. Live Treatment provides a unique wraparound approach of concierge services in person and virtually, specifically tailored to each client with a level of effectiveness that transcends any other program. In her daily experience of guiding clients to recovery and emotional freedom, Dr. Renee Calvert gets real to shed light on subjects that have remained in the shadows with courage and compassion. Joined by Bindi Height, international spiritual coach and mentor from Ethical Change Agency, with the mission to inspire change makers and holistic healers to create collective change to make the world a better place through the power of human connection, purpose, and podcasts. It's time to get real. Hey, Renee. Hey, Bindi. Now, uh, I'm so excited. We have a special guest joining us today uh, to talk about the flip side of the Me Too movement. Now, Beth Burke is a renowned attorney, coach, consultant, professor, and overall powerhouse whose extensive accomplishments and contributions to companies and individuals alike are too many to list. As former Chief Administrative Officer of Sony Pictures Entertainment, Beth oversaw a multitude of departments worldwide, including the legal department and human resources with a gifted and unique understanding of how to be an ally and resource while simultaneously being an expert mentor and guide on individual and global levels. A visionary and proactive thinker, Beth is currently CEO of Beth Burke Consulting, an independent coaching and consulting firm where she utilises her extensive experience, knowledge and passion to launch and mentor individuals who are navigating uncharted territory in challenging times. She shares a special dedication towards women in the workplace as she is an example of breaking through barriers with wisdom and grace. We're so grateful to have her on the show. Welcome, Beth. Thank you. Beth, we are so excited to have you here. Um, As our audience listens, I just feel so uh, privileged to be able to share uh, the gift of you um, as I've come to know you as a friend, mentor, um, just overall powerhouse who uh, walks the talk. And uh, that's not been easy um, in all the years of experience that you've had. Your knowledge coming from both the professional and the personal world of navigating the world as a woman, um, both in the workplace and just in general. So um, I am so excited to have you here today. And I would love to start out by asking you for some background on your extensive knowledge of how this movement began. My pleasure. Thank you. While most people think that the Me Too movement is fairly recent, the first site was actually started in 2006 by a sexual abuse survivor named Tarana Burke. Tarana started a website on MySpace, which at that time was the largest social media company in the world. Her purpose was to create a movement where women who had been victims of sexual harassment or abuse could share their experiences in an empathetic environment and encourage other women who had been victimized to come forward. 
the first this first attempt at a Me Too website got some attention, but Tarana eventually moved on to other women's causes. So that was 2006. Now we move forward 11 years later to 2000, to 2017, October 2017. At that time, the New York Times reported that two actresses had come forward with allegations of sexual abuse by a very dominant producer at that time, a man named Harvey Weinstein. Uh, Alyssa Milano, who is also an actress, decided that a new platform was needed to give all victims of sexual abuse a voice. So she posted on Twitter the following as hashtag me too. And this is exactly what she, the words that she used. If all women who have been sexually harassed or assaulted wrote me too as a status, we might give people a sense of the magnitude of the problem. That's well said, but that's all she wrote. That Me Too tweet immediately went viral. Alyssa posted her tweet on a Sunday night. And by the end of Monday, Facebook reported that in the first 24 hours, there were over 12 million posts worldwide about Me Too. That's in 24 hours. A year later, Twitter reported that Hashtag Me Too had been used more than 19 million times. This was more than a response. It was an avalanche of victims of sexual harassment or abuse who needed to tell their stories and build a base of solidarity with other victims. And that's the background of Me Too. Thank you so much for sharing that amazing background. I, I know that even, you know, with all of my familiarity with trauma, oftentimes, you know, we do think about the Me Too movement as much more current um, in terms of its prevalency than where it actually began. Um, so I want to publicly thank Tarana um, for her work in 2006. Um, obviously, Alyssa, other actresses. I mean, what I remember of Alyssa was I always wanted to grow up be, to, to be Sam um, because the <laughs> idea, because she was so she was so wonderful on that show growing up. Um, I actually used to name uh, my Cabbage Patch doll Samantha, um, and, and Sam and Sam was my favorite name of all time. Um, I always determined, you know, if I actually would have uh, preferred to be named Sam than Ronnie. Long shot, long shot away from Sam. So. I want to thank Alyssa and all the other actresses and those all of the millions of women who raise their voices around the world to join in solidarity. It is so obvious that this response was necessary. It was vital. And while we can discuss the improvements upon any social movement as it begins and grows, um, we first need to just appreciate and have gratitude for those who were really the founders of something that was life-changing. For me, I would be remiss in my work as a clinician and just a human being um, if I didn't acknowledge, as with all social movements, that this movement is flawed. And we will get into uh, some of those flaws, but one, one glaringly obvious flaw to me, one glaringly obvious flaw to me uh, is the exclusion of people in power being 
you know, this is exclusive to the heterosexual community. When we say Me Too, we are largely discussing in this platform um, the multitude of women who have suffered harassment or abuse at the hands of a male perpetrator. Um, so the glaringly obvious exclusion there are our brothers and sisters of the LGBTQ plus community. And before we can be more inclusionary, before this can grow into something where those brothers and sisters can join us in solidarity um, and in their own movement against, you know, speaking out for themselves and, and joining us in this fight, we have to start somewhere. So I think it's important to acknowledge that this was an absolutely necessary start. But as with all starts, this is this cannot remain how it continues. Um, like anything that does not die, it needs to continue to grow and improve. So I am looking forward to that improvement, but we cannot ignore the benefits that it had. And it's with enormous gratitude and hard thought that we even have a movement to discuss. Yeah. So I guess if we look at the flip side of it and we get back to basics, I mean, what do you see as the key benefits of the Me Too movement? As I look at it, I think uh, I see three main benefits of the movement. The first, as I've indicated already, is it went viral so quickly, which encouraged other victims to talk about their experiences. Second, and this is so critical, it broke the vicious cycle of silence and shame shared by most victims. It gave them a voice to report sexual abuse. A good example of this is the producer Harvey Weinstein, whom I mentioned before. Initially, as I said, two women stepped forward to talk about the sexual assaults they experienced from Harvey Weinstein. And I have to say, even though two doesn't sound like many, it took enormous courage. This actually was done through an article in the New York Times. But then the Me Too movement started. Within a week, over 15 women came forward with similar stories about Weinstein's conduct. Since the Me Too movement started, over 80 women have accused Weinstein of sexual harassment, assault, and even rape. And he's currently dealing with criminal charges in both New York and California. Amen. Yeah, I mean, it's it's unbelievably amazing. And the sad truth is, is that there was a fair amount of of gossip on the uh, on the entertainment industry web web line um, about Harvey being an abuser, but no one was stepping forward with real stories. So it's it's the idea that eventually over 80 women came forward on this is just mind boggling. Anyway, the third uh, benefit that I see is that the movement returned to victims of sexual assault, a renewed sense of their own power. While the Me Too movement has been key, as we just saw, in identifying and punishing sexual predators, the movement's ultimate goal is the empowerment of all women. And that's true whether the women have themselves been victims who need to come forward or women who have not themselves been victims but want to add their support to the movement. 
Absolutely. I mean, you know, when, when I talk about how contagious, how toxic and viral uh, shame and silence can be, how we can hold each other down and um, how that toxicity leads to all kinds of sidelines where that pain has to come out. Courage is also contagious. And the idea that two women turned into 80 and that 80 in that one case, as we know now, has grown millions large in terms of voices that have uh, risen to the occasion to speak their truth. Um, that, is, that is the power that we harness when we recognize our own strength, when we stand in our own integrity, and when we own our own story. Um, we, are, we are responsible for telling our own truth and we are responsible for absorbing and allowing ourselves to feel as though we are victims or taking a stand as survivors. And that certainly is one of the favorite parts of my work um, is in the journey from victim to survivor um, because not swallowing the shit um, that the acts done to us are our responsibility or our responsibility to stay silent about is part of true empowerment. I think it is important too to indicate, you know, just like with all things, you know, as I mentioned, I just want to be so cautious when I'm saying this because, and I'm just going to make it obvious that I, I may continue to repeat this. As we talk about the flaws within the movement, it's imperative to recognize that we are huge, huge fans and grateful that this movement exists. Any tweaks, any where can we be better, um, that comes from a place of really who I am as a human being and who my, what my mission is honestly in life is to constantly look for once something is good or great, um, how do we improve upon it? That's just my natural stance in the world um, because if you're not growing, you're dying. One of the things that I want to caution against is that this movement can be seen as one in which the intent is to make men afraid of women. I've heard it said by men. I've also heard it cautioned by women that, oh my God, you know, I don't, I don't want this to backfire into a man not being able to tell me that I look pretty. I don't want this to backfire. You know, men, um, you know, are, are, you know, the, the backfire with men is, you know, the, the fear of the opposite sex. In this case, we're talking about heterosexual relationships again. So we're talking about male-female relationships. I think it's very important to recognize that Me Too is not dedicated for the purpose of making men afraid of any potential liability when interacting with a woman, whether it's on a personal or professional level. That actually backfires on women too. The real goal here is to be able to get to a place where we're evaluating intention. It is absolutely integral to differentiate between acts that are stemming from ignorance, true mistakes that are being made by those that haven't learned or don't know better, versus premeditated acts of control and violence. The evaluation of the willingness of the person in power to learn about sexual abuse and the appropriate way to interact, that means everything. So to me, that really comes down to, you know, the, the recognition of intent 
um, the recognition of someone's willingness to learn, creating the safe space for that to be discussed. That's really the mission here. It's to actually bring people together in conversations and in communicating things that when they don't get communicated, um, when we don't know how to differentiate between what it means for us to be victims of premeditated sexual assault or a cat call. For me, I see a great deal that, that becomes highly, highly problematic because those two things are not equal. And a, a man being willing to learn what a cat call means to a woman, how it affects women, what our perceptions of those are, and having open conversations about it cannot be confused for an act of premeditated violence. And I, I just want to take this moment to once again reiterate, as I have in talking about sexual trauma in the past, that rape and any form of sexual assault are acts of power. They are not acts of sex. It has nothing to do with someone finding somebody else attractive. It has nothing to do with what that person is wearing. It has nothing to do with what that person may seem like they're inviting. No means no. Anytime that someone is in a position of power and abuses that power in any way, that, that is not an act of sex. That is an act of coercion. Rape is an act of coercion. Rape is a violent act. It's an act of assuming total power over another to the point of dehumanization. It has nothing to do with sex. So I just want to go on the record once more as differentiating those things, because believe it or not, they still get confused all the time. You've, uh, you've made so many good points. I, my mind is uh, swirling right now. First of all, I want to uh, echo what you've said about uh, our deep-seated belief in the importance of the Me Too movement and um, how much we owe to it. And even though I also, as you know, strongly agree that there are aspects of it that need to be re-examined, the world is better and our lives are better for the fact that we have this movement. Um, so I, I wanted to make that clear because especially because I, I'm about to talk about a couple of, of concerns that I have. Uh, the second thing that you said that really um, struck me was your discussion about intention. And you know that uh, before I went into human resources, I worked as an attorney. So I still tend to look at things from a legal aspect. Um, in the uh, criminal law world, uh, there are a couple foundational principles. And one of them is the intention of the perpetrator. And this goes to exactly what you said, so I won't spend much time repeating it, but you have to differentiate between the person who commits physical assault or even in a situation that can happen in the workplace where a person uh, uh, approaches a woman with the request that if she wants a certain promotion or a certain bonus or whatever, she has to first provide sexual favors to that person. Those are acts to which we can, I don't think you can imagine them happening without bad intention. 
you don't really need to ask about that. It's it's pretty obvious that the intention is there, that the act was premeditated, and that you can go from that. In contrast, though, I look at the situation as even though it's it's an unpleasant situation, I think about the man who tells a sexually offensive joke at a meeting. Is his intention the same as a physical predator? I, I don't think so. But it could be true that he's deliberately doing that to embarrass women. But maybe he was just ignorant as to why it, the joke he told really did constitute sexual harassment. And maybe he just needs to have an education on that. And I'll talk about that in, in a bit. One thing I found very interesting, and the New York Times has a uh, weekly column about where readers can write in regarding ethical quandaries that they're experiencing. And here, and this is true, <laughs> here is a recent story from that column. A man told a sexually offensive joke in a meeting and was immediately terminated. Some people in the meeting laughed, others just looked embarrassed, and the meeting went on. The ethics question was, should the people who laughed also be terminated? The mm -hmm. columnist said no and pointed out two things. One, sometimes when people are embarrassed, they laugh. And it doesn't mean that they think something was funny or that they approve of it. The second point he made was, rather than thinking about this as in the context of termination, it was a really good scenario for education. It gave the company an opportunity to educate people what sexual harassment really was and why that included offensive jokes. So that was my first concern as, as a former attorney was the whole intentionality issue that you raised, Rone. The second is um, has to do with another key principle in criminal law, which is that the punishment needs to fit the crime. And not all criminal actions merit the same kind of punishment. I totally agree that telling an offensive joke should carry some penalty for the joke teller, but should it be the same punishment as someone who commits a sexual uh, assault on somebody or asks for sexual favors and to trade in exchange for some employment benefit? I don't think so. I think we need to, I, I agree that these actions, the actions of physical assault or the quid pro quo and sexual favors merit immediate termination. Maybe in some cases, these should actually should be reported to the police. But do all actions of sexual harassment mandate immediate termination? I don't think so. And I think that it has a backfire effect on, on uh, women who otherwise might be interested or, or willing to report an act of harassment, but are concerned about causing somebody to have to be fired. It just feels like it's too much. So um, that's my thought about those two issues, which I think at some point will need to be dealt with in the context of the Me Too movement. Absolutely. And you know, Beth, one of the things you and I have discussed, you know, in our friendship, um, and as we discuss the Me Too movement amongst ourselves and the experiences that we've each had, which are 
which are different experiences, but really ring true uh, to the same points, is what what we've termed the pendulum effect. You actually you actually coined that for me and said, you know, this is a clear example of where the pendulum swings in one direction and sometimes it swings too far. And like with any social movement that's gaining its legs, it's clear to see that when it does swing too far, you know, you're the one who actually educated me on the idea that not only is it limiting for women not reporting um, events that they feel have made them uncomfortable in the workplace for fear of someone getting fired. But it actually even has, you know, you know, a ripple effect beyond that, which is that uh, women actually are not being promoted as often to positions of power because if they are working under the opposite sex, men are so afraid of the backlash of having a woman in power be alone in a setting with them, be an equal, um, having the opportunity and the power to utilize that voice. Instead of men feeling like there's a safe space that's been created, again, we're speaking about those men who are ignorant and willing to learn, not those who are seeking to um, oppress and hurt. We're kind of, there, there's kind of a, a point we hit where the pendulum swings too far and we're missing the opportunity to educate in the, in that realm, how to actually conduct conversations and communication around these things in a safe way, uh, create those limits and boundaries in a safe way where the alternative is when it's not being discussed, women are actually not being promoted to positions of power. They're not being, they're actually being silenced for having a voice because men have actually become so scared of doing the wrong thing when they don't know what the wrong thing might be. So they're scared of stepping into a minefield, so they just don't step at all. And you're the one who explained that to me as kind of another ripple effect of this uh, pendulum swinging um, that when we go too far with it and we're not, we're, we're using the opportunity to yes, raise our voices and call out what's wrong, but not actually going so far as teaching what's right or how to get ourselves into a position of communication and very necessary discussion. The backlash of that can be felt on all sides of this in some pretty profound ways. You know, you're absolutely right. Um, the production executive who uh, sh shares a mutual friend with me uh, told this mutual friend that uh, he had figured out how he was going to handle the whole Me Too movement. He said that from this point on, he was not going to have a closed door meeting with any woman, that he was not going to uh, take any woman on business travel unless it was absolutely necessary. And third, that if they do have to travel together, um, that she would have to stay in a separate hotel. While if there was one of, if there also was a male associate who was traveling, he could stay in the same hotel as the executive. And I was so struck when I heard this story by the impact this was going to have on a woman's career. I mean, there are sometimes situations that you want to discuss behind a closed door. And the fact that you're aware that you, you've made a rule that you can't do that with a woman probably means that woman is not going to have the opportunity to work on that particular project.
And the idea of the travel, not you know, thinking twice before inviting a woman to join you on business travel is also very limiting because again, there's opportunities that are going to be lost. So that whole backlash that you're referring to and the, the swinging of the pendulum is absolutely you know, a concern that we share on um, unintended consequences of a very important movement. So, so, I mean, what can we do about it? I mean, what changes can be made? Well, speaking as somebody who used to run in human resources department, um, I think the first thing needs to be that employers have to be very clear with their employees about what constitutes sexual harassment and abuse, what the penalties could be, and all and their employees should be obligated to re- read written policies about this policies that the employer disseminates among the employees and the employees should be given an opportunity to ask questions about it and ultimately to sign off on it so that they the employer can say yeah i have written policies and the employees have been advised about it um the uh, employer, however, in this op- in this instance, has an obligation to enforce those policies consistently and um, with an even hand. Uh, it's not good enough to just publish a bunch of policies and have people read them. You have to walk the talk, and you have to do it right. So that's one area that can be addressed: the idea of having policies. Uh, the second is that employers need to provide people training. Um, Rane, you've talked a lot about educating people and people being open to uh, and willing to be educated. Well, if there's no opportunity to be educated, it's a little hard to do that. So I really believe, and this is actually the law in California, that, um, that employers should on a very regular basis offer training Um, in prevention of sexual harassment and abuse, Um, and uh, especially for people who are in positions of managers, supervisors, or any other authority figure. Uh, Frankly, if you're going to fire somebody for a sexually offensive joke, you want to be sure that the joke teller has been educated as to why such actions are considered sexual harassment and what the penalty for the actions are going to be. Um, Another important aspect, and we haven't really talked about it, is that um, if you're going to have rules about sexual harassment and sexual abuse and you want people to uh, feel empowered to speak about this, you have to be clear that there's zero tolerance for retaliation. If people feel that they've they've been given a voice and they're encouraged to speak up, but then somebody can can make their lives miserable because they did speak up, you're going to have, again, another backlash about this. So that's really important. Um, Lastly, and I'm going to repeat myself because it's it's so important, um, even with all the possibilities of backlash on women, This movement is so critical. I think about when I was working at the studio and the number of times there would be whispers about um, 
harassment or abusive behavior, but no one would really come forward. There just wasn't that sense that it was okay. And now it's not only okay, but it's actually encouraged. And there are millions of people who are, who are contributing to that dialogue. And uh, I think we have a lot to thank the Alyssa Milano and the Me Too movement for that. So I just wanted uh, to get that in. I also, you know, want to thank you for the work that you've done, um, you know, within the larger corporation, of course, Sony globally, and then, you know, your own corporation, the founder of your own corporation, all those smaller corporations that you've served and worked for, both HR, legally, um, and as a professor, Beth. I mean, I think you know, what, what going back to the statement that you made earlier, and I'm going to paraphrase it, you know, the, the story that came out of the New York Times, where there was a man who told a joke, and he was fired. And I'm going to paraphrase and say that you called it a, a, mis, a mislearning opportunity. Those mislearning opportunities profoundly affect us all. Because what happened in that room, if I could imagine it, and, and kind of discuss the ripple effect that I would personally think of is not only did that person get fired for someone that he, for something that he may or may not have understood as being wrong, but the other people in that room learned in that moment that kind of a thing can get you fired. And without any further education or explanation, what that actually does is close off communication rather than open it. It creates a space that could have been made to educate and to the writer's point about, you know, should the other should the other people in the room who laughed also been fired? For me to state that differently, I would say that the responsibility for that comment being made and the firing of that individual really felt the company and every person in the company that held a position of power as a whole. That was a mislearning opportunity that continues, I'm sure. Uh, to have a ripple effect in companies where something like that happens and that is the response and people jump to responding with punishment rather than with education. And that is what happens when we are responding to fear and things that we don't understand rather than gaining enough of an understanding and having people like you mentor us through, Beth, and in the, in the um, employment environment how it is that you do create safe spaces for conversations like that to occur, how you create a learning opportunity out of something like that. Because otherwise, people just learn how to hide their behavior better. And again, the shame, secrecy, contagious, right? Where you have shame and secrecy, yeah. something something's going to go wrong. You don't want people stuffing down things that they don't understand. You don't want, we don't want to be breeding fear. We want to be breeding communication. We want to be breeding uh, evolve. You know, we want to evolve here and you can't evolve in silence. You have to be discussing the problems and we have to be creating safe spaces to discuss them. And so, you know, I know you do that and have done that in your work, um, regardless of the size of the company you've worked for. And you've had firsthand experience in guiding people through some pretty uncomfortable spots, you know, where 
there were those teachable moments. And you and I were discussing one, I think, where, um, you know, there was, you know, everything from even a photograph uh, that that or a piece of art that could be hanging in someone's office um, and educating about how through the eyes of an, of, of, of an outsider, how that could be perceived. And would you mind just briefly sharing that story with me? Obviously, you know, keeping confidentiality, but, you know, just the idea of what it was like to go into a room and to bear witness to something and say, and and, and also the response of the individual uh, when you when you brought this up to this person, um, because I think it really illustrates a point here of where we educate versus shame. I'd be happy to. There was uh, in the, let's see, this would probably be in around the, the turn of the century. <laughs> um, I know that sounds like a million years ago, doesn't it? There was a very, uh, at that time, famous picture about an actress named Natasha Kinsky, who was in this picture nude and wrapped up in a, with a very large boa snake, um, circled around her body. I'm actually making a circle movement like you can see it. Um, (laughs) And um, and I I found the picture as a woman offensive because the idea that this would be something one would want to look at all the time, a woman in essence being a naked woman being in essence strangled by a, a very large snake. Um, there's probably Freudian implications. I was just, that. I was just going to say, it kind of doesn't get more sexual than that. <laughs> uh, as a psychologist in the room, um, that that kind of uh, that that says sex, sex, sex all over it. Yeah, and it was so. I was attending a meeting of uh, representatives from all the major studios, and we were in, at, at, and this meeting took place at one of these studios, not. Sony. And um, we were invited into the general counsel's office to discuss a fairly serious matter. And uh, I walk into the office and I'm the only, lucky me, I'm the only woman in the group. And I take a look at this picture and I say to the general counsel, we'll call him Bill. Um, I say, uh, nice choice in art, Bill. And he turns around and looks at the picture. Everybody looks at the picture and you can see dawning on everyone's face. And again, I was the only woman in the room, the sense of, oh, wait a minute, this picture could actually be offensive to somebody. And so um, the guy got, yeah, imagine that. Um, this man, um, who again was not a stupid man, or actually, as a voice was, I'm sure is, remains a very nice man, but it just had never occurred to him. And he got initially um, a little bit defensive and kind of hemmed and hawed a bit, and then finally looked at me and said, I'm going to be taking the picture down. And I said, you can be taught. <laughs> so, um, and I thanked him for his, uh, his sensitivity and his openness to the comment and everybody else shuffled their feet and looked like they were glad that the whole thing was now over. Um, so yeah, that's one of the, the situations I've been in. I wanted to say something else too. Um, the whole topic of creating safe spaces and educational opportunities, has to be balanced with the idea that 
there has to be some kind of consequence to inappropriate action. I, I believe, as hopefully I've made clear, it doesn't always mean termination. In fact, it really shouldn't mean termination. I'm speaking as a former human resources person. It shouldn't mean termination unless you've made that very clear. And it really does rise to the level of something for which you want to have zero tolerance. And that should be rare. But if all you do is, is for certain actions, just educate, you leave um, people in the, uh, in the company with the impression that there's nothing really serious about doing these things. So in the, in the New York Times um, uh, column, where they said they immediately terminated the person who told the joke, I thought, wow, there, unless there's like a really profound backstory to that, like he's told told jokes like that before, he's been warned, he's been educated, he's been, and he still goes out and do that, then I understand that you want to have a, uh, a termination. But otherwise, I would think more about things like suspensions or putting somebody, writing someone up and putting them on probation or something. That goes to the point I made that the crime should fit, the punishment, I'm sorry, should fit the crime. It's, it's complicated. It's really complicated. Um, but if, if people feel that raising a concern, reporting an action doesn't give rise to anything, except for having to watch a uh, sexual abuse prevention tape, it's not going to feel real. So I struggled with this all the time as a, uh, as a, as a head of human resources, you know, uh, trying to figure out. I had to, I had to fire one person one time who had been with the company for 30 years because they had pornography all over the computer, which they were insisting that um, other people in their department watch. Uh, and that's, that was a zero tolerance situation. But man, that was a hard thing to look somebody, even though he, the person deserved it. Um, it's still, it was a hard moment looking at them. Absolutely. And especially coming from a time, you know, you made, you made the joke, you know, turn of the century, but you know, it goes to the point that, you know, these acts that have been not brought to light have been going on so much. I mean, they've been going on forever, you know, they've been going on forever in the workplace, in personal spaces. Um, that's why the idea of opening up conversation and creating safe spaces for conversation is so important. Um, and yes, it's complicated. Human beings are complicated. But if we don't get into the complicated and we don't figure out on an individual basis for your individual company, for your individual relationship, your guidelines, your lines in the sand and how you're going to educate about them and how you're going to express yourself, what you end up with are very broad strokes. And those broad strokes actually can be very damaging rather than creating what we're always looking to create, which is to start with something good, improve upon it and make it better. And that's that's really what the goal, I think, of any company or any growing society is, is really about, is if we are to grow and evolve, we have to communicate. And where there's no communication, where there's no safe space, people are bound to not only continue to make the same mistakes, but perhaps even worse ones. So as complicated as it may be, it's definitely worth navigating. Bindi, you know, in your 
section of the world, which is so different than Los Angeles, California, but also very much the same, right? And, you know, have, have you had experience with this in, in your in, in your neck of the woods? You'd, you'd be surprised how similar it is to there. I mean, uh, there's there's now legislation in place to, to cover people, whether they are a, a victim or a perpetrator, um, and, you know, policies and procedures in place in corporate environments to actually uh, protect the employer uh, and the employees. Um, and, yeah, there's that regular training that goes on and things like that. But, um, yeah, I've been in... Uh, places where people have had to go because they, again, and they've generally, in my experience, been long-standing employees who uh, probably haven't had that long-term education and understanding that some of their stuff isn't cool in the workplace. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's the same globally um, from my experience, yeah. Yeah. It gets back to that human experience, yep. right? That communication is communication, and that when the pendulum is swinging, it's kind of swinging globally. Yeah, you know? and I think the thing to keep this conversation going, and whilst Me, Me Too was such a, a viral movement um, initially, um, to keep that conversation going and that awareness and education going, I think it's, it's conversations like this that need uh, to be had to help people see the other side of, of the coin. I agree very much with, with everything that you've said, and I think, Renee, you made a very good point about um, that uh, things have to be tailored to certain environments and that not, I think the idea of one size fits all, that every company should have the same policy and every company should have the same training and every company should have the same consequences for us is um, ultimately self-defeating. You need to be, you need to really tailor things to the environment that you're working in. I mean, a, a little tech company of 10 people, all of whom are under 25, are going to talk about things differently than a large corporation with 5,000 employees, some of whom have been in the workforce for 30 years. It's just going to be a different, it's got, you know, the, the way you approach things has got to be uh, tailored for, for those situations. Absolutely. And, you know, talking about you know, in my work, which has to do much more with the um, interpersonal and intrapersonal, you know, um, I've been asked, you know, not just, you know, in, in your realm, it's much more helping companies, however small or large, navigate these very difficult conversations. In my world, um, where it's about dating relationships, in navigating social situations, not just in the workplace, but these difficulties also present themselves. And I have had men and women alike, and I share this philosophy, by the way, that when we have a broad stroke um, where all things are considered equal, I can completely understand where both men and women have a very strong reaction to, I told a joke and I am lumped into the same predatory status as somebody who premeditated a violent act of sexual assault, whether it's psychological, physical abuse, or both, um, which in the case of physical abuse, we know that psychological abuse always ensues. What I'm all about in communication and the reason for conversations like this is to find solution. And when people say to me, 
gosh, I don't want to get lumped into that same situation. And, you know, I'm, I'm so afraid of, you know, having my actions misinterpreted, even on a social level. The answer that I've come up with, and by no means am I perfect, and I'm an evolving person too. I'm a human being first, doctor second, as I always say. But what I have found my advice to be in situations like this is that if you are in a position of power, and let me explain what I mean by that, wherever there is a power differential, if you are in a social setting and the person that you are speaking to is inebriated, if you are in a dating situation and you know, you're out at a bar, you're out at a restaurant and you're not sure how the person might respond, um, but you know that there is alcohol involved or the influence of some sort of substance on the ability to make a clear and defined decision. If you are the person in a position of power, it is your role to protect yourself as well as the person who you may be potentially accused of perpetrating against by recognizing that you are in a position of power, that there is unequal power there. There is not, there is not equity. And where there is not, where, where things are not equal across the board, you have to assume that consent cannot truly be voluntary. So let me give an example of that. If I am at a bar and I am hitting on somebody who I would like to take home and that person cannot fully consent because they are inebriated, don't take the risk. If you are in a position of power where you are in a workplace or you are a professor and you have a student, wait the time until the person is no longer your student or your employee before you even address the matter of finding them attractive or wanting to pursue a non-professional relationship with them. Because wherever a power differential exists, you can never ever assume that even if the person is a consenting adult, where positions of power are involved, consent gets very, very gray. And if you don't wanna live in that gray area, then there's a real cut and dry way to handle that. For us as clinicians, and you know, it, it applies to just you know, doctors and medical profession as well. One of the very first things that we read about and learn, Psych 101, is that therapy never involves sex. And we know that when we enter into this world, where we are the doctors, we are, no matter how human we may be, how authentically real we may be, by virtue of our relationship, our clients, our patients are in positions of vulnerability. And that is the reason why when you talk about something that's cut and dry, the fastest way to lose your license without question, and it should be that way, by the way, is to initiate or accept a sexual advance, act on a sexual advance with someone who is actively your patient, actively your client. So there are laws that exist that immediately say, if you cannot appreciate and understand your role as a clinician and the vulnerability of the person that is sharing 
their intimate details of their life with you. The client therapeutic relationship is one of the most intimate kinds of relationships there are. And when you talk about complicating, you talk about the complexities and the the nuances that exist, there is a very safe and very beautiful way of navigating that transference. If there is a sexual transference that occurs in that relationship, talk about an opportunity for growth and learning. If you actually have boundaries and if you do not take advantage of your position of power and if you actually do what the law indicates, but more importantly, what your own human ethics should indicate, which is that anytime you're in that position, the answer is no. It doesn't matter who's making the sexual advance or with, with what level of aggression they may be making it. You know, desperately, I'm desperately in love with you, doctor. Uh, it doesn't matter. Your job is to protect that patient. And in so doing, also protect yourself. We are, we are held to a standard of creating a safe space for our clients to process whatever may be going on. And the level of intimacy that exists in those kinds of relationships really oftentimes is the most intimate of any relationship, non-sexual, that a person can experience. And those, those lines can get crossed and, you know, intimacy and sexuality get confused all the time. But talking about learning experiences, getting to the other side of that have been just life-changing uh, for clients of mine to actually be able to process, uh, of course, always on an individual basis, why those feelings exist and to actually grow from them and learn that it's safe to discuss them and why they exist and what that says about them as people. That same level of safety in very different ways also gets applied to the other scenarios I'm discussing here, which is that we all have to assume that if we are in the position of power and someone else is, is in a position of vulnerability, whether it's because there's a substance involved, whether it's because there is a, differenti a large differential in, um, in uh, physical power involved, whatever the case may be, if you are in a position of power over someone else, the safest bet on all sides is to recognize your power, own it, accept it, whether or not you want it, whether or not you wish you didn't have it in that moment. I'm sure there are tons of professors who have looked at their students and maybe there's even, you know, a very small age difference between the two of them. They otherwise could be peers. It happens all the time. Wait the time until the person is no longer your student. And then you will be able to fully assess whether or not you have full consent. Um, if you can't wait that time period, you really need to look at yourself and figure out why. Anything worth doing is, is worth doing out of respect and integrity. And any relationship that comes with assumed consent can never carry that. It, it can never. It can never actually be considered equal um, because of the way that it began, and because assumptions about safety and assumptions about uh, whether or not there was an abuse of power cannot be made if you just eliminate that element. Yeah, you know, um, I hear what you're saying, and I totally agree with it. Um, what makes it complicated in the work situation is unlike a school 
where they're going to be an end of a semester or a therapeutic relationship where you can turn it into an opportunity for a, 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 a client, a patient to, um, to learn from that and to, to have a, some therapeutic value to the relationship in a work environment you don't, you know, you could be working in the same company for years. And I once had a, uh, a rather heated conversation with, with the person who at the time was my, uh, was my boss, who wanted to create a uh, zero tolerance for dating policy. In other words, you, you, you date somebody that you work with, you can be fired. And that there was no permitted dating in the company. And I thought great, to great, my, great way to make people hide the fact they're dating. Precisely, mm-hmm. precisely. And that was exactly why I was so and so anti that that approach, because all it would do would drive it underground. And what happens in these situations, especially as you point out, where there's a differential in power, is when when and if the relationship blows, then um, somebody is going to is going to wind up getting hurt professionally. Either the person without the power who's got less power is going to be worried about retaliation from the disappointed former romantic partner, um, or that if the romantic partner happens to be in a position of power, they worry about that they're going to be um, told that they've committed uh, uh, sexual harassment or some kind of sexual assault. What I wound up doing, and this was not original with me, I had I studied what other companies had done in their policies. What I wound up doing was a, not that it's, it's zero tolerance, but that you have to report it. Now, not my favorite thing in the world as a head of HR to sit there listening to people talking about how they're dating other people. It feels very intrusive. But it got it all out on the table. And the situ- what I was able to do in those situations is um, if the person, if one of the two people involved in the romantic relationship was a supervisor of the other person, which happens a lot in, in these situations, I could take the person with less power and have them report to someone else, or I could remove the supervisor's influence for decisions like compensation or promotions or whatever, because it was all out on the table. We all knew what we were dealing with. It wasn't a perfect approach, but at least it um, it protected the people involved and not a matter of unimportance. It protected the company as well. So um, it's, it's, as I said before, it can get very complicated. And as you've said, people are very complicated. Well, what a way to restore equity, you know, mm-hmm. in a true egalitarian situation where otherwise it would strictly have been a power differential. And right. that that's exactly where the learning points come in. It's like it is on a company by company basis. And people do have very hard lines they draw on the sand. But we have to go back to intention. What mm-hmm. is the intention here? Is the intention here to keep people afraid, either to report what they're feeling or to learn from what they don't know? Or is, is the intention here to learn how to hide better? And just like with anything that I've always talked about with shame and secrecy, if, if you don't allow for the conversation, you're basically endorsing 
whether you realize it or not, if people are going to do what they're going to do, they're just going to learn how to hide it better. And that makes it much more difficult to manage. And as we continue to say, how many lost learning opportunities are we going to have before we actually change them into something that could be quite transformational, Um, whether that's on a personal level, a clinical level, um, an employee to employer level. It's really about deciding what this movement looks like now and improving upon it on an individualized basis to meet the needs of today, to meet the needs of um, to meet the needs of the specific individuals that we are communicating with, and really to invite the opportunity for education. The idea here is to not make people afraid because women now have a voice. The idea is to utilize that voice appropriately to say, we don't want you to be afraid of us. Um, the idea is not, we don't make things equal by saying, I was afraid and oppressed. Now I want you to feel what that feels like. That's not what I believe the Me Too movement stands for. For me, Me Too is about understanding that change needs to occur and change cannot occur without learning. So we learn and we grow and we continue to seek environments to learn and grow and save spaces that are created for learning and for growth so that this can become its best version of itself. I couldn't agree more, Renee. And, you know, I think it all comes back to the grassroots of our human experience and understanding each other when we when we get back to basics. So one of the ways that uh, we get back to basics and understand each other is through music. And every episode, uh, we share a song. So, uh, Renee, what is your song this episode? So the song I've chosen is Don't You Want Me Baby by The Human League. Um, and the answer, I guess I have to say to that is pay attention to when that answer is no, and know when to ask it. Absolutely. And uh, Beth, your song. Uh, my song is I Am Woman, uh, which was recorded by Helen Reddy, um, many decades ago. In fact, when I looked it up, I was a little surprised exactly how old this song is <laughs> and how old I am to have remembered when it first came out. Um, It's a song that talks about women's power and um, equally important, women's ability to survive. And uh, it just, to me, really relates to everything we've been talking about. Mm, Absolutely. A true anthem of women's empowerment, that one. Uh, And uh, my song, uh, Not Ready to Make Nice by The Chicks. You can find uh, the playlist on Spotify by searching Get Real with Dr. Renee. And the meditation for this episode, Know Your Power. You can find that one on Inside Timer. You will find all the relevant links in the show notes. Thanks for getting real with us, Dr. Renee. Thank you. And thank you so much, Beth Burke, for joining us today. You are indeed a powerhouse and we are so privileged to have had you. And it was such a pleasure. Thank you. It was a privilege and an honor to be invited to join you. Thank you for tuning in to Get Real with Dr. Ronay. If you've loved the show and would like to experience coaching with coaches like Dr. Ronay or Bindi through Live Treatment Concierge Services, visit livetreatmentvip.com. Sarah Talk Solutions. Ladies and gentlemen, you've tuned into a bit of a different type of show. I'm Sarah B and I'm your host. 
You can find me on my IG, which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. I talk about amazing, relevant conversations and topics and what functions that goes on in this magical, wonderful, wonderful city of the City of Angels. My IG, which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. Electric acid. Electric acid. Welcome to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing, where we harmonize your mind, body, and soul. I'm Amanda, your sound therapy expert. And I'm Stephen, the curious explorer uncovering the mysteries of sound. Together we explore vibrations, frequencies and the power of sound therapy and tuning forks. Discover ancient wisdom, reduce stress and tune into a healthier life. Subscribe to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing today. Electric Acid.